Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS's podcast. I'm Thea Linarbuzzi and I'm joined by Lucy Dallas, our arts editor and allotment extraordinaire. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. Um, it's a shame you weren't with us last week, I think, to talk about gardens with Lydia Davis. I know, I was a bit jealous about that. I don't think I would have had much to offer because I think the like the local names for plants and weeds are different often in oh, the in States America. and over here. I see. So some of the stuff she was talking about in her piece I recognised and some of it I would have not had the faintest idea. I always much prefer the common names rather yeah. than the, the Latin names, yeah, don't no, you? Like, nice. uh, what is it, blowballs for... Um, what? For blowballs and, <laughs> blowballs and Irish daisies, they're, they're dandelions. Oh, are they? I got a bit obsessed with all the common names for dandelions not that long yes. ago, and I've instantly forgotten all of them. Of well, course. it's Don de Lyon, which I didn't realise. Yeah. Lion's teeth. Yeah. But also in French, it's called Pisson Lee. Yeah, because <laughs> that's, it has that's diuretic, diuretic properties. <laughs> if you're not say. careful. <laughs> um, before we go any further, let me remind you all about a TLS subscription offer five issues for £5 or dollars. If that sounds fair to you and you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast dot the hyphen tls dot com or if you live anywhere else including the uk go to the hyphen tls dot co dot uk forward slash pod 19 on this week's show the sir john Soane's museum in london is a site of an unprecedented gathering of william hogarth's painted series michael Caine's reports on these works replete with a bitter exuberance folly finally observed and sin satirized If you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, you may have noticed it's Halloween, a celebration of the dead which it seems, as Joanna Scutts puts it this week, to have expanded the reach of its cold and twisted fingers to make all of October a kind of Christmas for lovers of the spooky and the macabre. If you count yourselves among that group, do keep listening. The UK's constitution has been said to be almost spectral itself, there and yet not really there in any truly substantive form. Les Green joins us to tell us more. Let's start with a question. Who do you think this epitaph is for, which you will find on a tombstone in Chiswick in West London? Farewell, great painter of mankind, who reached the noblest point of art, whose pictured morals charm the mind and through the eye correct the heart. 
The answer is, of course, William Hogarth. It was written by his friend, the actor David Garrick, and I guess the idea of morals and correction might have been a bit of a clue. Michael Keynes of this parish went to see the extraordinary Hogarth exhibition, currently on at Sir John Soane's Museum, and he wrote a wonderful piece about it, and he's here to talk about it with us. Thank you for coming, Michael. Can you tell us, first of all, why why it is unprecedented? Uh, well, the simple great thing about this exhibition is that it means until early January, January 5th, I think, anyone within striking distance of Sir John Soane's Museum in Lincoln's Inn Fields in London can go and see all of Hogarth's, um, what he called his uh, modern moral subjects, his series of paintings and engravings. You can go and see them together in one place. Uh, beginning with um, the earliest ones, the Harlot's Progress and the Rake's Progress, which share a room there from the sort of early mid 1730s, onto a second room that gives you Marriage à la Mode and an abandoned work, I think quite an intriguing abandoned work called The Happy Marriage. And then onwards around the Soane Museums, you get to wander around and see how strange and delirious and sort of odd a place it is yeah. through later works. So it's not exactly in chronological order. So you see the last engraving he ever did um, called The Bathos or The tailpiece or the bathos which was for his sort of collected engravings 1764 the year of his death you see that if you follow the strict course that you're given before you see um industry and idleness and the humours of an election but you still it's amazing to see them all together so they're all together and you can compare them and and and, and look at them in proper detail and the so museum is already for those people who don't know it as you said it's an extraordinary place to have an exhibition yeah, absolutely. Can you can you explain it a little bit? Well, I think uh, yeah, I, I I'm absolutely in love with the zone. It's it's a, it's a madhouse. So you wouldn't want to be locked in there ever. Not, no, certainly not Halloween. Not. But well, certainly not. Well, you'd be too ever. scared to move. There's a sarcophagus downstairs. There's a sarcophagus downstairs. You'd be scared to move. You knock over a bust of Shakespeare would, yeah. or something. Yeah. It's terrifying, and it's all come out of this this one man's this one brilliant architect's strange mind. But it's right for Hogarth, I think, well, for two reasons. There's a very simple, again, simple pragmatic reason, which is that. Soane himself bought two of these modern moral series, mm. he bought um, modern moral subjects. He bought um, The Rake's Progress apparently for a song and he um, quite late in life I think got hold of um, the humours of an election uh, which, had, which Garrick had bought from Hogarth himself. So really there's a very short line of progression yeah. from Hogarth to the architect's own. That's the practical side. This is sort of spiritual intellectual side as well, which is I think that Soane was very interested in, in in Hogarth, obviously having bought these paintings, but he had books about him. He's very interested in the idea of native art and uh, hence his shrine to Shakespeare as well. So it's the right place. And mm. obviously this aren't, there, there's bigger Hogarth exhibitions, but this is the right place to see them all together, I think. And you can see them, the ones that he owned in the place where they were when he was still alive in the house, can't you? So you look at them as he was looking at them. Yeah, well, certainly in the case of um, humours and election, because he built a, a picture room towards the back of the house. It's a kind of, it's almost like a, a TARDIS-shaped room mm. with a light well at the top. Uh, walls you can unfold to see yet more amazing paintings that he, he'd collected. And, and humours and election have, have a good position there. They're sort of eye level if you're... My, if you're kind of you know pipsqueak like me, you can sort of stare at them, stare at these great figures in the eye. Um, Rake's progress is in this exhibition. It's in the middle of a room, so it's not quite as he would have had have seen it, but it's closest to it. And one thing I didn't realise about the Rake's progress, he's the originator of it. 
all the other retellings of it are after him. That's that's yeah, his thing. Yeah, I, isn't it? I mean, I know the idea things. of a progress already existed, but he—that's his story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting thing that the exhibition brings out is this: um, is how Hogarth adopts and sort of satirizes the idea of just progress in general. Um, apparently, I mean, the Rake's Progress is the second one. It's slightly more ambitious. It's eight. Um, paintings the um harlot's progress the paintings are lost they were destroyed in a fire in the 18th century but the engravings survive and apparently that's where it started he he he, um drew um a drury lane prostitute and started sort of telling her story through further installments as Mm. it were and it became popular series his his studio was in covent garden at the time so he's around the corner and people could obviously drop in because it's it's your shop window as well Mm. and so that idea grew from that and progress was just a natural idea you know for for a narrative um and and they're they're really extraordinary uh extraordinary things that then they come if you to if you were to summarize the stories they could sound quite simplistic but when you see them face to face, they're full of they're just full of gorgeous detail. They're, they're sort of mind blowing. And they're very rich stories anyway, aren't they? Because actually they are. Yes, as you say on the face of it, they're very simplistic, but they can be full of pathos and sadness and kind of bits of humour and all sorts of things. Side stories happening yeah. in the corner and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's lovely details. I, I certainly, you know, only noticed picked up here and there. But I, I think things you see when you get to tour them, it's a bit like it's a kind of speed reading. It's kind of novelistic speed reading, I suppose, because each painting captures obviously a single moment. So there is the moment in the humours of an election where everyone is pissed in the first painting. It's sort of the beginning of the election process. And um, a brick has been thrown through a window and it's hitting someone on the head and he's falling off his chair. I think it's the party secretary. And so you just see the sort of... And so it's that precise moment. You can recognise that kind of thing. as It's almost sort of photographic idea going on there. But then... The whole thing is every story in the picture is frozen. So that's just one moment. But every picture will contain possibly hundreds of those little subplots, as Mm. you say. How did Hogarth consider his own progress? How did he reflect on his... How did he see his role? Did he see himself as a kind of a moral crusader? Or how how do you think he thought of himself? I, I think artistically, he's obviously out to make a name for himself doing something original. I don't think he called them modern moral subjects. It's quite sort of heavy phrase. I don't think he called them that till quite late in life. I might be wrong about that. But it does feel like something he's imposed afterwards, looking back and justifying his his career. But what he is trying to do is break out of the conventions um, for an artist at the time. So he'd, he'd mastered doing sort of conversation pieces. He was going to make a great career and doing these extraordinary portraits of um, his, his sort of famed contemporaries. Um, and he'd done something, I think his sort of breakout work, in, um, he'd, there'd been engravings, but his breakout painting, as it were, was a scene from the, um, the Beggar's Opera, and he did a sort of v- several versions of this um, in the late 1720s. So he sort of laid the groundwork for this kind of thing, you know, learning from from the theatre. So I think he sees himself as doing something, drawing on other art forms, um, and something that is to be defined against the continental traditions and conventions. He's very much against the idea later in life, for example, of having kind of academies of, of um, mm. critics and uh, um, sort of amateurs who dare you to judge him. You wouldn't have approved of us at all. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I've got a grim feeling about that. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Hogarth. Sorry, Hogarth. I was going to ask you about the theatricality, actually, along with Garrick. Do you think they influence each other? Because you say, you say that the, the, the people in the paintings are sort of downstage almost and that there is a Garrick-like range of facial expressions in them. Do you think he was influenced by that. Yeah, that's an interesting idea because I think you know Hogarth's got a extraordinary way with light as well. It feels like that could be 
um, theatrical in a sense, or you could also he's learnt it from from you know from other other painters. But um, he and Garrick are certainly collaborators in a sense. There's this obviously this extraordinary painting of Garrick in his signature role of Richard the Third. Um, extraordinary theatrical work. Uh, there's not a, always an easy relationship. They fall out a bit a bit later um, o- over a painting of, of Garrick. Um, but th- I think they're part of, as it were, a kind of very loose sort of network of people pushing um, in the same direction. I'd put Fielding and Gay um, in that category. And you'd define them against somebody like, you know, William Kent and the Earl of Burlington and people who very much are about adopting continental styles and Palladianism. Mm. Mm. Um, they, Everything they, being kind of the, being beautiful and on the surface and yeah, ideal. Yeah, and I think Hogarth, I mean, not always. There are obviously there are some real, you know, clunking ones there that, that led to all kinds of problems for him. But uh, he, he can do uh, elegance. That's one of the distinctive things about um, marriage a la mode is it's full of beautiful sort of surfaces mm. and but then he chooses to position his people i don't know slumped in a chair is that know. what garrick didn't like about the uh, the painting that he did of, of him then you mentioned um, was it not yeah. idealized <laughs> enough was it not bad. elegant enough was he slumped <laughs> in a chair <laughs> i think garrick definitely didn't want to be fixed slumped in a chair he always he's always putting on a show and he's one of those people if you met him off stage he's still performing um it's got to be the center of attention um but i think it's the painting i might be slightly misremembering this but there's a joint painting of Garrick and his wife Ava Maria um, and Garrick sitting at his desk he's looking slightly inspired and maybe he's writing and Ava Maria is reaching around to take the quill from his hand <laughs> it's got a little bit of suggestiveness to it and I, I can't I don't remember exactly the terms of how they fall out but basically let's say it doesn't get displayed in pride right. of place if, if I remember that right okay um, do you think that they, slightly following on from what Thea said do you think that they are the pictures are meant, I was interested in whether they're meant as tales of morality. You know, uh, here is kind of vice taking a fall or whoever it is taking a fall. Or because they're so specific in time, but especially in place. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're more like social commentary? This is what's happening at this point well, right Street, now. Street, Gin Lane. Yeah. yeah. This is a state of things. Yeah, that's it. I, I think there's, I mean, there's another thing that the exhibition perfectly brings out. Um it's it it aligns those things you know he's he's brilliant at saying well as i said this could be very simplistic in somebody else's hands this is a moral tale you're being told off you might as well be a commandment but there's so much going on there's so much exuberance in these canvases in particular there's there's extra sort of um extra to requirement exuberance in in the works that are just going to be turned into engravings so for in um there's one called The Four Stages of Cruelty, in which the boy who um, tortures a dog becomes a kind of, I don't know, highwayman, or, or Robbie Stewart would say a minor gangster, um, <laughs> uh, becomes a highwayman who slits uh, his female accomplice's throat and um, is you know, is punished in the final kind of thing. But there's loads of details in it. When you see the simplified version, those little details have kind of gone missing because he was just, you know, his mind just clearly works his way into that. So in a way, he's, an, um, he's like, say, Fielding. He's seeing the reality of the world um, around him, very attentive to these little details, refusing to be just slick and follow some easy narrative. But I, I, the, the thing I, I'm working my way towards with Hogarth, I suppose, and trying to grapple with that question, is that... Um, you think, well, is art at the service of morality here? Or to, to us as kind of, I don't know, just decadent folk who just want to look at these works, it's the other way around. It's the morality is part of the spark for Hogarth. It's morality at the service of art. Uh, and it also very much depends um, 
on who he thinks his his um, market is going to be. I mean, some of the, mm. the big paintings are obviously selling to to collectors, um, but he does series that are um, industry and idleness, quite quite relatively late series, um, is aimed directly at people who he thinks he can influence mm. and say, don't be like Tom Idol, be like Francis Goodchild. Don't do what this guy's doing. Exactly, yeah. But yeah. The, and also the political ones are almost, I mean, I know this is a cliche and it's said a lot, but they are almost like cartoons. I mean, they're better than cartoons in, sure, in, in, yeah. their, you know, in their execution, but they are a bit like that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair, fair enough. I mean, he's extraordinary, you know, faces and bodies. If, if, if there was an extra, I know, a kind of philistine extension to the Soane Museum you'd put in a lot of the portraits that give you a complementary sense of what he can do with faces and flesh and clothes mm, and pose. Colour, exactly, yeah. Captain Coroman, all that kind of marvellous work. Um, but uh, there's plenty of that in here. Caricatures, I think. Um, that one, I, I, This is ridiculous on a podcast, but I did bring in a couple of uh, the images. It. I'm going to describe the images. We're going to be quiet images. for five minutes now. We're just going to look yeah. at a picture. We're going to talk about uh, this and say, mm, that's about, nice. Think mm. about this. Um, this is only is an aid memoir, but just to say that uh, this is um, uh, the four times of day. I think this is noon, and on one side, so I this is very easily Googleable. So I'm hope I'm not reaching for something really obscure here. But on one side, you have Huguenots coming out of church. They're very fancily dressed, and on the other side, you have a kind of British, sort of slightly lower down scale scene. Apparently, there's a boy who's crying based on a poussin. So that's oh. him having a cheeky little, mm. you know, nod to a continental influence. nod to Pusa. But the boy is crying over a pie that's um, been smashed. No, sorry, pl- the plate's broken and the pie that was on it is now on the ground and a street urchin is um, slurping it up. Mm. But it's quite a kind of oddly balanced, complicated painting. There's no actual, mm. no simple moral to it. It's not that the Huguenots are better than the Brits. Um, or the other way around, really. It's just it, and this is a recognisable scene. So going back to mm. what you're you're saying, you know, but I think Hogarth's contemporaries would have immediately said, oh, um, you know, one of these is Sadler's Wells, one of these is Charing yes. Cross. Yeah, yeah, they, they would have been able to be very exact Absolutely. about where it was. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was very careful about that and saying, this is this is London. We are we are living in this kind of moral world or whatever. It yes, is. yeah. So even if it is emblematic, it's also this is it. Right yeah, now. and it, it really works in terms of what you do with your money as well. So these gorgeous surfaces that he can paint sometimes. He's sending up the ridiculous things that people, um, you know, well, how they spaff the money up the wall. <laughs> Sorry, I just got lots of political <laughs> phrases on my mind today. I don't know why. I can't imagine. Finally, I was going to ask, you said he was part of a movement, but he was also kind of an outsider uh, in terms of the artistic establishment, wasn't he? And do you think, I mean, A, is that fair? And did that inform the way he viewed things at all, do you think? He certainly doesn't come from money. His, da- his father was a Latin teacher who did um, spend time in the fleet um, as a debtor. So Hogarth, uh, in common, I think, with many great artists with a sense of the realities of life and willingness to, t- to talk and express them, um, really knew what it was like at first hand. But then as he grows up, as he's apprenticed, as he starts to learn his trade, he, um, he falls in with um, Sir James Thornhill, who was both a painter and an MP, um, and on the kind of Warpole side of the government. So factionism comes into it. That means Hogarth gets certain commissions and doesn't get others. And then um, later in life, I mean, I feel bad about this, but in that review, I said something about maybe, although Hogarth uh, might pose as being quite moralistic. He's not so good on the virtue side of things. He's very good on the vice side of things. He's yeah, funny well, it's, about them. Well, and it's that's more fun. Isn't I, I, I realise in writing that I didn't. I almost cut this bit, but they, that's actually a, a sort of 
two 250-year-old criticism of Hogarth and when it was made to him in its most cutting way quite late in his life, mm. um, it, it did really, really hurt him and he was, he was sort of ill and embittered towards the end of his life. Um, Aren't we all? Hasten to say that's not the only reason. <laughs> but yeah, he was an outsider at the beginning of his life. He was fighting all the way through it. And yeah. at the end, he was, I think, kind of out of fashion, really. But but it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And in a wonderful place. And you've only got uh, three months to get there. Exactly. So exactly. hurry Let's up, start everyone. Start walking now. Yeah, yeah. get yeah. moving. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Humans will continue to find ever more creative ways of scaring themselves and each other. I've only recently become aware of scare farms, for example. Lucy, do you know anything about them? Have you heard of those? No, I have not heard of them. But so. What, what you, I'm delighted to hear I about mean, them. I mean, well, OK, so a quick search turned up a business called The Farm of Terror Experience, just northeast of Ramsbottom, which says it is, and I quote, the only UK scare attraction administering the live or die concept, in which you can tailor your own scare experience to suit your preference. You can choose to live and you'll be given a glow stick, so the horrors within will not approach you. You can choose to die... Uh, and you will be scared, you will be touched, and you will not survive. <laughs> it seems to me, though, that if you're going to the farm of terror, yes. why would you choose to live? I mean, maybe just because you want to watch other people. Well, I mean, it takes a bold person to choose to I die. Mean, <laughs> let, let, let me get this clear, I'm not going. Okay. <laughs> not, well, I'm I mean, sure if, you were, if you were going to... I'm too frightened. 
if you were going to, the eager instructed, uh, the eager are instructed to park somewhere behind Morrison's supermarket, yep, where there is a, there's a there's a handy shuttle bus service. <laughs> so um, all of which is a very roundabout way of of agreeing with our writer Joanna Scutts when she says that sometimes a dark and stormy night calls for nothing more innovative than a classic chilling tale. That is a book. Indeed, Joanna has reviewed three new ones for us, a quaint and curious volume of tales and poems of the Gothic, Women's Weird being strange stories by women written between 1890 and 1940, and Promethean Horrors, classic tales of mad science. Each compendium exhibits a curiosity, she says, about what exactly it takes to turn a story weird and what that weirdness can tell us about ourselves. We're joined on the line now by the disembodied voice of Joanna Scutts. Hello, Joanna. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, H.P. Lovecraft thought it was very important to distinguish between the gothic and the weird. So I wonder if we might start by defining and giving a quick kind of genealogy of the former, of the gothic. And that's particularly the remit of the first of these, of these books, I think. The gothic shares its name with an architectural style, this sort of European turrets and towers, castles. Um, it was something that was kind of considered very very over the top and kind of trashy and sensational and so there was a sort of fight in this is kind of the late 1600s there's a sort of war between this very kind of classical architectural style and then the gothic and that sort of feeds into other areas of culture where you kind of have this battle between what is right and proper and classical and then everything that everybody secretly really likes which is scandal and excess and in literature sort of stories that are big on sort of blood and scandal while at the same time kind of saying that these things are trashy and uh, we shouldn't really like them they nevertheless are hugely popular so we think of all the usual kind of suspects Edgar Allan Poe and Edith Wharton and all that kind of stuff Yes, um, they're actually kind of a little bit. They're later. later. They're kind of coming into this tradition. Oh, of course, because we've um, got we've got Walpole first, haven't we? Right. Yes. So the Castle of Otranto is excerpted in this book is um, 1764, and that was a huge blockbuster. Walpole was politician, and he tried initially to say that this was a story that he had discovered and translated from the Italian, because like Italy and. Southern Europe is kind of where all of this stuff is supposed to originate, you know, not with good uh, stand-up kind of British <laughs> society men. But um, in fact, he was the author of it. And it's this kind of lurid tale that was just spawned, a, you know, hundreds of imitators. And once I think he realized how popular it was, um, he acknowledged that he was the author and kind of that that launched this, this whole genre um, that then very quickly becomes spoofed and imitated and spoofed again. And, well, obviously um, you think of Northanger Abbey, don't you? Right, yes, which is about 40 years later. And already, you know, you can see how deeply all of these tropes are sort of embedded in the culture. Um, and Catherine Norland, the heroine, can go hunting for, you know, she wants to find secret drawers and secret compartments in trunks. And she's sort of desperate to find things that are everything that is behind the surface and sort of buried in this uh, very spooky house. And that's kind of the the big sort of joke is what the Gothic terrors are are very sort of actually kind of benign compared to the sort of terror, the sort of more like social 
terrors. Um, and that becomes a theme that these other stories pick up. Yeah, because that's what you say, isn't it, in the piece, Joanna, that there is real danger and sort of pain <laughs> lurking for her. She is in jeopardy mm. in a way, but, you know, not from kind of lightning strikes and misty evenings. It's from the more mundane uh, realities of um, of life. Being a woman in, <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the period. Yeah. Essentially, yes, being a woman in, in the 18th and 19th century is the real source of horror, which is a little bit, you know, I think is one of the reasons why women became such prolific authors of frightening stories. And there's this sense of using these spooky stories as a way to kind of illustrate these much more sort of mundane, everyday horrors of sort of living in a world that is not set up for you to do well, what you like but <laughs> well and that i mean that leads us seamlessly there to to the next volume that you consider women's weird i mean that sounds a particularly interesting proposition in light of the the sorts of writers that we see here i mean it's not difficult to notice that many of the women were active you know in the issues of their day we've got may sinclair mm-hmm. was a suffragist e nesbitt co-founded the fabian society what what sorts of stuff do we see here there's a, a lot of interest in these stories from the end of the 19th century, but sort of early 20th century. They're very interested in the new sort of world as it's opening up for women. Um, so one of the stories that I I talk about is sort of a bit of a generational clash. Um, that's the one by E. Nesbitt. And it talks about the, um, you know, it has these young, these sort of flighty young women characters who are sort of interested in telling ghost stories just for the fun of it and then this older woman who's the housekeeper of the um the where of the house where they're staying comes in with a very much more sort of downbeat story that turns on her kind of spurned love affair and uh, and the kind of the fact that not being married has kind of left her in this with no choice but to to be a servant and to sort of be overlooked by these uh, younger, richer girls. So you kind of have this sense of the sadness, you know, the story is very creepy and involves a kind of shadow that kills people mysteriously, but it also is just a very sad kind of story of emotional loss and kind of what the limited opportunities for women. And that seems to be something that was really on Nesbitt's mind and on the mind of a lot of these writers. It's interesting because you could look at a volume like this, you could just see the title Women's Weird and you could just think, oh, well, this is just a kind of a, almost like a marketing, not a marketing gimmick as such, but just a way of, you know, just lumping women together to address the fact that historically, you know, when I jumped ahead a century or so before to Mr. James and Edgar Allan Poe, this tends to quite often be um, a domain that's seen as being quite quite male. These women aren't being put together to just to uh, give credit where it's due and rebalance things in that respect. They're actually, they do have so much in common. They are, they do kind of build a complete portrait of the social concerns of the time you, you talk about charlotte perkins gilman and that seems like a perfect illustration of 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 this sort of story as particular social commentary yes it's interesting you you mentioned lovecraft earlier and he's he's sort of writing in the early 20th century and really trying to establish kind of a legitimacy and, and a tradition to this kind of horror what we now think of as i guess horror writing um, and he was trying to kind of get away from the Gothic with all of its um, sort of excess and its bloody chains and its ghosts and 
clanking. You know, suits of armors, <laughs> clanking. Yes, clanking was very, you know, that's just far too obvious. He didn't like that. But he, and he sort of was trying to talk about this feeling that gets, you know, this this sense of kind of creepiness and dread that comes over the reader and sort of how you, um, you know, what that what that does and what that can reveal. And what's what was so interesting to me in reading these women's stories is how often that feeling is something that the female characters um, can pick up on. And it's something that they insist is real and they, you know, and they're trying to get the men in their lives and in their world to accept that this feeling is real and to take it seriously. And that seems to be a very fertile you know, frustration, that, that frustration of not being taken seriously if you're, you're sort of... Um, your intuition and your your sort of more sensitive observation of the world is being dismissed by men who are very rational and don't don't think this can possibly happen. It also it seems like, as they said, it's a sort of is a way of looking at social history and also political in a way. Maybe they've got a feeling of dread because things aren't right, you know, and it's not because there's a it's not because there's a deadly shadow. But, you know, or the, the, the shadow is the fact that, as you say, they can't express themselves or they can't work or they can't get the right kind of health care or they're actually not being taken seriously. It's a really interesting way of looking at horror as a way of expressing that. And as, and as, uh, as you said, quite a lot of them were political activists. Yeah. And, and actually fact, you, you say they're writing wrongs, yeah. writing wrongs in the stories. And when you look at um, the yellow wallpaper, which is Charlotte Perkins Gilman's probably have most famous story, mm. I, I think, that has been sort of taken up very recently as a perfect model, um, the experience of, of gaslighting. Mm. Yes, I think that's, that one is such a fascinating blend of this very creepy description of, of this, of what it's like to be essentially sort of trapped in the room, but then you, you're trapped in this, she's trapped in this house that isn't hers, but in this, in this bedroom, and obsesses about this wallpaper that is, uh, and it has these sort of strange patterns, and it comes up with all these ways of trying to describe what this color is and why it sort of seems so deathly, and and it's like rotting things that are rotting, and it's it's very vivid. You'll never look at a yellow, you'll never decorate with anything <laughs> anything yellow in your life after reading this book. I have just bought uh, a yellow floor story. paint, and I'm I'm very strongly <laughs> reconsidering. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, don't don't read this. She'll give you all kinds of awful synonyms for what this other color can be, and it just and it, and it seems so. She's kind of the, this character. The narrator is is stifling in this in this place, but it gradually kind of emerges that it's she's being kept there essentially for her own good, and she's being treated by her husband, who is also a doctor, and there's other. I think it's her brother. There's other men around her sort of behind the husband who are kind of reinforcing this. And she's kept there because they suspect her, because they think she's going mad. And then she starts going mad because she's being kept there. And it's kind of, she can't break out of this cycle. The the husband there is a doctor, as you say, and then we've got a final volume of, mm. of stories that you consider, which centres on mad scientists. I'm not saying her husband was a mad scientist, but um, what what's the thinking with that volume there? It's a range of a sort of covers a historical range, but kind of draws on this um, this stock figure that we've become very used to of this sort of isolated scientist figure, sort of in his laboratory, going 
deeper and deeper into what is possible and kind of leaving behind his humanity in the process. And so this is a really interesting, you know, another sort of evolution of the the horror story. I think the latest story in this volume goes up to the it's the 1950s and it's the original story that the movie The Fly is based on. It taps into a fear of things we can't understand, doesn't it? And technology and things are moving too fast and what are they doing? Yes, it's this kind of idea of of possibilities being opened up that that connect back with very sort of ancient fears. I thought what was interesting, the Mary Shelley story that I look at there, it's this ancient fear of sort of what happens or this question about immortality. Oh, is this and the, immortality the is, mortal yeah. immortal, that story there? The mortal That's immortal. That's right. Right. Yes. And it's just kind of such a, you know, I think a, a fundamental reflection of, of sort of humanity to think about what happens you know, what if we didn't die? What would that actually look like? How would that work? And Shelley chooses to center it on this relationship where the hero, the young apprentice, it is it there who um, who accidentally drinks this immortality potion. And then he's stuck, saddled with this wife, and then he feels guilty and kind of they get married. And then she, just over the years, it's this breakdown of their relationship as she inevitably gets older and he doesn't and it's interesting because it's not it's not so much i mean there's a real strong moral message in that i mean it is about the you know the scientist morality and having created this elixir in in the first place but it's also there's also the spin on the morality of 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 the the man who accidentally drinks it right Right. Yes. He drinks this potion because he thinks it's like sort of an anti-love potion. He thinks it'll mean that he will be able to forget her because she has become dismissive and arrogant and she's pursuing other men and he's still in love with her and he wants to be quit of her. So he's already trying to, even though it's not his potion, he's trying to overcome a natural separation process grieving process and he well, he sort of wants all, all the, all the pleasure all the pleasure and, and and fun of of love with none of the pain i suppose a final question before we let you slink back into the shadows do you <laughs> uh, do you have a story that that kind of never ceases to unsettle you you know no, no matter how many times you read and reread it well there's so many in here that are so that there are so creepy and connect to many other ideas i think i'm still unsettled always by the yellow wallpaper. I think Mm. I will come back to that one just because it's told through the eyes of the woman who is suffering it and you sort of, you are being led along through her eyes and so you never quite know what she's seeing, whether she's convincing herself of this craziness or if there is some kind of shape behind the walls and, and you're always unsettled because you have no set kind of, reality to uh to kind of go back to well um joanna scutts thank you very much for joining us thank you so much this was great fun British politics can feel rather gothic these days. Not only does so much of the dizzying plot unspool in the Palace of Westminster, executed in gothic revivalist style by Barry and Pugin, but the attitudes and opinions are themselves often unsettling and over-the-top, with hammy mid-19th century accents, largely courtesy of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Lurking ever behind the scenes is the matter of the UK's ghostly constitution, so fluid and unpinned down that Alexis de Tocqueville could deny it even existed. 
But, Les Green confirms, writing in this week's TLS, it existed in the 19th century when Tocqueville was writing, and it exists now, though in what state, to what end, and with what future are all moot points. Here to unpack all this and move us off this shaky extended metaphor onto more stable, rational ground is Les Green. Hello, Les. Hello there. Hello. Um, a historical question first, if I may. How, how has the UK ended up without a written codified constitution? Well, partly by luck. Uh, most of the countries that have uh, written or codified constitutions, as you say, went through some very fundamental break, like decolonization or like a revolution. Um, and so there was, as they say in Germany, a year null, a year zero. They had to start over. And although we did have uh, revolutions, as you know, of a kind, enough of the constitutional framework survived them. So we never really had an opportunity. Uh, I'm afraid we're probably going to get one. But we haven't in the past had an opportunity to sit down at our year zero and uh, rethink things. And so, I mean, what, what do we have instead? Why and why? Why is it a problem? Well, we have a whole package of statute law, which is, of course, written, but not uh, codified in any way. And more important, it can be changed by an ordinary act of parliament. Anything you want to imagine, really, can the usual view has it, just be changed by a temporary majority in the House. And by the way, let me stress that, a majority in Parliament, uh, not a majority of the country, a majority of the people. And it could be as temporary as a majority cobbled together for a particular set of issues. So the Constitution is fluid. You'll have noticed, no doubt, over the last few months, daily on the news, someone saying, can they really do that? Can they really prorogue Parliament? In order to uh, prevent a debate about Brexit, can they really leave the UK, uh, leave the EU without an act of parliament, without primary legislation? Could they really do such and such? And the people that are asking this aren't aren't sort of ill-informed people. You will have seen lawyers, you know, on the television and on Twitter wondering and asking, can they really do that? And we find out whether they can do it or not after a court rules. It'd be rather nice to be able to know up front whether they can really do that. Yeah, I mean, it's this thing of just no one ever really knowing where they stand. You get a sense in 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 the rest of your piece as well that if perhaps we had all known, if we had had a codified constitution that we all had access to and could have consulted and, and been relatively firm on, we might not be in the predicament that we are now in. We might be in a different predicament. I think one thing people neglect is the amount of work that community membership does in lieu of a codified constitution. So let me just mention three things that uh, being in the EU does for us in a helpful way without a codified constitution. One is it provides a framework for enforceable human rights, not through the Human Rights Act, but through the Charter, the European Charter. A second very important thing it does for us is it secures, uh, I don't mean national security, but it, but it, it fixes our boundaries. And this is, of, as everyone knows, of acute importance in the north of Ireland. And the third thing it does is it provides for a very modest degree of regional redistribution uh, from r- richer to, pu- uh, to poorer areas. So agricultural support, regional support in the West Country, and throughout the, throughout the country, actually, uh, support to higher education in a variety of ways. So we get things, even although we don't have a codified constitution through treaty membership that in other countries are provided or stabilized by written constitution. Well, once we are, if we are, uh, without 
treaty member without the uh, uh, the EU structure under us, we'll need to replace it with something. Do you think that is in a way one of the many unintended consequences or unthought through? Because you say there's quite a lot of this law and these the situation that's unthought through. So you, you get to a situation where maybe we have left and suddenly the borders, yeah, you can redraw them because it's not particularly written down clearly what's going to happen. Is that partly what you mean when you say about British law, that any, it can be changed by ordinary legislation? Absolutely. One of the things I say in the piece that, that always, always comes as a shock to my friends and family in Scotland is that the, two, the Scotland Act 2016, which says right in its face, uh, the Scottish Parliament is a permanent part of the UK constitution, is lying to us. Uh, there's no such thing in UK law as a permanent part of the constitution, because that could be changed tomorrow by a simple, straightforward bill in Parliament. By the way, have a look at the Fixed Term Parliament Act. How fixed did that turn out to be? <laughs> it's about to be unfixed as we speak, I think. So the, so the worry, so the two worries, one, it, one is fluidity, it, you know, it's reasonable for a country to know how things stand. But the other thing is what I call in the piece legitimacy. And one reason that there isn't a lot of, you know, general buy into the UK constitution as it stands is people aren't really very sure what it is. Mm. Again, I keep coming back to this point um, again and again, we've seen over the last year, could they really do that? Mm. And, and we if, have to go to the Supreme Court to find out if they can, which is extraordinary. And if um, if Brexit is then an opportunity for us to to change our constitution, to write it down, to codify it, and I think Vernon Bogdana argues that it is, how, how would we go about that? What's the sort of first step after so long without having it in that form? How do we start something like that? Yeah, so I'm quite sympathetic to Vernon's uh, argument. But I want to start things the other way around. So he thinks quite appropriately as a political scientist would of, you know, what are the institutions we need? What power should they have? What would a domestic bill of rights look like? And all this kind of stuff. All absolutely important questions. But I want to start at the other end. I would like us to start by thinking about the process, thinking about the procedure of creating a constitution, and in particular, how to get more popular input to it. Uh, I would not like to see a new constitution be generated by this parliament or the next parliament, uh, not for partisan reasons, but because the parliament is a very, very narrow um, slice through British opinion. And by the way, the same thing was true, of course, of the uh, Brexit referendum. Yes, it allows in some popular opinion, but through a very, very narrow door. And I would like to... Uh, I would like to see it begin with some thinking about things like citizens' assemblies, and the work could be divided up. We could have a, a group of you know, ordinary citizens in a convention-type arrangement thinking about our electoral system, uh, which is a bit of a disaster. We could have another one thinking about Northern Ireland. We could have a third group thinking about human rights. The way I would like to see it happen is to have broad popular input. Think of these as kind of focus groups writ large. Is there precedent for this, I'm wondering? Because, I mean, all of this sounds sounds wonderful. It sounds really ideal involving the people in that way. If you've got the luxury of time and if you're able to pull together people from sufficiently different walks of life to really get something that's representative. Is there a precedent for this kind of undertaking, you know, a modern nation state? Well, I think there are precedents. Of course, the most famous ones were the, uh, in the 18th century, the 
Federalist debates in the United States and a convention convened to, not terribly broad-based, but convened in order to think about problems like this. Two Canadian provinces have used this very model to think about electoral reform with some success. In, in the end, uh, they decided not to change their electoral systems, but it's been used. The new South African constitution, um, again, tried to draw on a broader base of community input, par partly because it had to. Mm. I think we're going to find ourselves in the same position. The really good question that you raise, whether we could do any of this fast enough, <laughs> all of these things will take time, constitution building takes time, but we could do parts of the work. I would love, someone said, well, where would you start? I would like us to start by having a think about the bits of a constitution that we think should be beyond the change of an ordinary majority. So entrenched, one way or the other. There are lots of different ways we could do this. And, and how would we do that? Um, would it be by consecutive majorities in parliament? Should we instead do it by regional distribution? You know, should we do it by referendum, as in Ireland? Lots of different options. But I'd like to think about the procedure before I start thinking about what I want to put in the Constitution. And do you think that these, these citizens' assemblies or constitutions would be the, the thing that would confer legitimacy in, 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 sort of in two senses of the word, as you say? I do think that. I mean, I, I, I think that one of the difficulties, I mean, there are many difficulties, but one of the difficulties that's glaring and obvious around the entire poisonous Brexit debate is that many people were on both sides of this, were stunned to find that such and such was the case legally, and they had no idea. I don't just mean, as I say, by the, by the way, you know, lay people and so forth. Lots of lawyers were astonished by certain rulings and, and, and by certain ways of proceeding. And it's a, it's a bad idea to have the most fundamental law come as a matter of shock or surprise. Mm. <laughs> it's hard to find an American who doesn't know that there is a First Amendment and that it protects free speech. I would be curious to know what people in our country think about free speech, <laughs> yeah. what if it protects it and whether it goes too far or not far enough. Well, the beauty of, of not having it written down, of course, is it allows you to, to flip flop and never, never fully commit or, you know, draw a line in the sand. I suppose I wonder whether whether there is an appetite for the kind of change that we're talking about here, whether Brexit is the opportunity and also whether whether it's the right time, you know, in this kind of acutely politicised climate at the moment. It, as you said before, I suppose it, it doesn't really feel like a good idea. I mean, and how would we insulate whatever it is that we do against the political volatility of, of, of the time? Absolutely fair worry. To go back to where we started, you know, written constitutions tend to get made in terms of crisis. It was a revolution or there has been a declaration of independence or there's been a war or there's or, you know, uh, and, and those are not the best times to sit down and 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 uh, and begin. We the people um, well, sometimes one is just forced to do that. Indeed. So I kind of imagine it happening in, in kind of tranches in sort of stages, sit, sitting down and having a kind of standstill period. Let's not change everything just today. But then begin to think about, well, how would we change or create a constitution? What would be, I mean, would citizens' assemblies be a good idea? Should some things be entrenched? Should it be the case that the Scottish Parliament really is a permanent part of the UK constitution, not just permanent until someone amends the, amends the statute? But there's certainly no guarantee uh, that we could do any of it fast enough. But one thing that's certainly happening it, it, happening is that the constitution is going to change if, if the partition of Europe goes ahead. 
just in the way that the constitution of Ireland inevitably changed with the partition of Ireland, and even more tragically, the partition of India. Uh, mm. let, let, let things don't go in that direction. But if we are heading towards partition, and we may be, we won't have a choice. Mm. <laughs> We are going to have lots of things that are important bits of the Constitution, including the European Charter and all these things, will just, you know, uh, not be there. Hmm. So there'll be something there. We'll have to think in some way about regional redistribution. We'll have to think, you know, in some way about um, what things are going to protect human rights, what human rights we want protected. It's, it's, it's not as if we have, we have the option of saying, right, then uh, let's just do nothing. Many commentators have have pointed out on the socioeconomic side of Brexit, I'm not talking about that at all, but on the socioeconomic side of Brexit, that there's no such thing as getting Brexit done on a certain day. Uh, what, what happens is on a, a certain day, we may well leave the union, and then the very next day, the things that will be on the table will be the things that uh, the most urgent things for us to decide that are you know, now settled by the treaties. So the very next day, we will be in a constitutional crisis. Yeah. The very the very next day would be, you know, I mean, we're, I think we're in one now with respect to Northern Ireland and, and, and I think our claim to be uh, upholding, uh, you know, as fair umpires, the Good Friday Agreement has really become quite, quite hollow. And I think it's going to become dangerous. Yes. Uh, I mean, to say we are living in interesting times is, is surely the understatement of, of the year. Um, Les Green, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us. My pleasure. Great being here. Thank you. Uh, that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Les Green, to Michael Keynes and Joanna Scutts. Do pick up a copy of the TLS when you can in this week's issue. You'll also find the sad and twisted story of Lafcadio Hearn, who fled 19th century Europe to find fame in Japan writing spine-chilling tales of flesh-eating spirits. We unpick the myths around the life of the major 20th century dramatist Sheila Delaney and consider the murder trial that obsessed Harper Lee. Next week, we'll be looking at the work of Les Murray, one of the great poets in the English language. We'll have recollections of the fall of the Berlin Wall, an account of DIY punk in the DDR, and a previously unpublished interview with Vladimir Nabokov. Till then, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.